0: Hello everyone, welcome to the newest episode of the Ancient Future Heart Podcast with your host, myself, Kelly Ingram. So today I am going to attempt to define myth, which is a gargantuan task and I will not come even close because its it could take an entire lifetime and multiple lifetimes to unfold what myth is and what myth is is supposed to be. Intangible. It's supposed to be amorphous because it is all about relating to and expressing the unseen, but the felt, if that makes sense. And we're going to go deep into this, but this is a foundational episode. A lot of these first episodes are really just me laying out where we're going to go here because we need to know what myth is. We need to have a collective understanding of it because. Generally, in the mainstream, the what we've been led to believe about myth is a complete lie. That's, and that's what we've been told, that myths are stories. Just yesterday, I took out some books from the library to do with my kids. I'm homeschooling my five-year-old twins. And we were talking about the moon. We're talking about calendars. And I opened up this scholastic history book. I don't know if you remember them from when your kids. are kind of, you know, large, flat books. And it said how ancient people invented myths about the moon. And I mean, it's infuriating, <laughs> completely infuriating, <laughs> because that couldn't be farther from the truth. To think that ancient people were just sitting around making shit up about the moon or just like making these stories up about any anything and that that's how myths came to be is again just so frustrating and it's it's so demeaning to indigenous people because nothing could be farther than the truth myths are some of the most intelligent complex the highest technology available to humanity is in the alchemy of storytelling in these layered, nuanced, rich narratives that hold i mean inexpressible in words amounts of wisdom about the human experience and I mean inexpressible in words in that i can't I can't say in a dry um, straightforward way. I can't express the truths that these stories hold because the weirdness and the strangeness and the darkness at times of myth is exactly what and why these stories are so compelling and they're so much more than stories. They are history. Very often myths are literal history history. And that's been known. We're gonna get into that in this episode. So yeah, let me just tell you what to expect in this episode. I'm gonna start with connecting myth to meaning. We're gonna talk about meta-narratives and narrative therapy. Of course, we're going to touch on Joseph Campbell and his definition of myth. I'm going to actually share a range of, quote, definitions of myth by various scholars in the field. And I love this because everyone is going to give you a little bit of flavor, a little bit of a facet in all these different experts' perspective on how they would define myth in one sentence. Then we're going to go deep into the history of oral traditions and the invention of writing because I really want to help you, help myself, help all of us get over society's deep-seated unconscious belief that the written word, that written recorded history is superior to mythology and other oral traditions. We are going to wipe the slate clean there. We are going to break that paradigm. So we're going to end today by touching on Could myth be history? Is myth history? So let's get started with meaning. If you listened to episode three on meaning and purpose, I share about Dr. Paul Wong's work. So he calls what he does meaning therapy, and it is based on Viktor Frankl's work and elements of positive psychology, especially research that shows essentially that Frankl was right that our suffering, our greatest suffering, leads to a more profound connection with our sense of the meaning of life, our connection with the purpose of why we are here. And yes, that might be counterintuitive to the average person, but if you sit back and you think about it, it actually makes perfect sense if you think about your own experiences in your own life. And again, this has been proven repeatedly in you know, dozens, if not hundreds of studies at this point in the psychological field. So one of the central elements of meaning therapy, Dr. Wong's meaning therapy, is narrative. He writes about how humans live rich lives, and meaning is always best understood, expressed, and constructed through our stories. So myth is an essential element of this. He actually calls them, what Wong calls them, meta narratives because these stories help us understand what we believe, who we are. They help us understand our pain and our potential for change and move towards a preferred future. This is what Wong says. So it turns out that narrative therapy is a thing. I mean, you and I know that anyone that's been to therapy, anyone that's worked with a coach, anyone that's a writer is very well aware of this. There's actually a man named, a therapist named Dr. Michael White. Sorry, he's not a doctor. I just said that he is um a social worker and and psychotherapist and he coined the term narrative therapy which he describes as a quote collaborative and non-pathologizing approach and that word non-pathologizing is so important to me and to myth and to this podcast, to my entire life philosophy, which is, and I think the direction that all wellness and spirituality is really going in. And I mean, where it originally came from, but we've been in this, especially right now, it's just this zeitgeist of pathologizing everything. I mean, think about the mainstream, think about how they're obsessed with sickness and illness, and there's a pill, there's a shot, there's something for everything, just take that. So that is so pervasive in every single aspect of our culture. And stories are non-pathologizing. They are not saying this is wrong and this is right and we have to fix it. And you're ill and you're bad. It's, it's integrative. It is, it is the antidote to this black and white pathological type of thinking. So narrative therapy views problems as separate from people, It assumes that people are multidimensional and it helps people view their life in a broader context of their own and the human story. When it comes to meaning itself, White says that these questions, quote, these questions, these why questions, sorry, play a profoundly significant role in helping people to give voice to and further develop important concepts of living, end quote. So I have to mention Joseph Campbell's work here we have to go here next. We will be going much deeper into Joseph Campbell's work in the future. He is going to be a constant companion of ours, as he should be and needs to be if we are going to live in this world of mythology. Perhaps Campbell is the most famous scholar, writer, to bridge the world of personal meaning, our stories, our lives, with Archetypes and the wisdom of meta narratives, as in myths. We will do a whole episode on the power of myth, on the hero's journey. I think that's probably what he's most famous for. So, if you don't know the name Joseph Campbell, you probably have heard of the hero's journey. He has massively influenced commercial storytelling. I mean, George Lucas references him as being incredibly influential in the Star Wars series. Really though, what what Joseph Campbell did was to look back on myths and essentially map. He didn't make it up, right? He was looking at the way that stories have always been told and mapping out what he calls the the archetype of the hero's journey. So Campbell bridges the greatest myths and these larger themes within them with our personal individually led lives and he helps us understand how we can shift our lives, and that's what the hero is, right? You know, take take personal responsibility in this really, really, I mean, life-changing way through understanding ourselves in a mythological sense. So I want to read this quote from him about the four functions of myth, and this is from his book, The Power of Myth. So, quote, Myth basically serves four functions. The first is the mystical function, realizing what a wonder the universe is and what a wonder you are and experiencing awe before this mystery. The second is a cosmological dimension. The dimension with which science is concerned, showing you the shape the universe is, but showing it in such a way that the mystery comes again through. The third function is the sociological one, supporting and validating a certain social order. It is the sociological function of myth that has taken over our world, and it is out of date. But there is a fourth function of myth, and this is the one that I think everyone must try today to relate to, and that is a pedagogical pedagogical function of how to live a human lifetime under any circumstances end quote so you can hear in there Frankel and Wong right it's this 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 last bit about under any circumstances that admits great suffering a beautiful life is is a you know, something we're able to create, but that's not even, myths are not as beautiful as we might think, right? Today, we are led to believe that, you know, especially in like pop spirituality, there's this veneration of the goddess. Well, if you go back and read ancient myths, these are really, really dark, violent stories, And the context in which they were told is always so, so essential to remember. And we're going to be doing that throughout. I'm a history nerd. So that's going to be a big part of this. But And remember, most of these stories were told or were written down by men. We're going to get to that in a minute. But it's really important to remember that the way that myths... The way that myths help us through suffering, again, isn't because it's an inspirational story in, in the way that we are conditioned to think about inspirational stories in this day and age. It's about showing us that the grittiness can be moved through in this very, you know, at times dark um psychological sense. And you really have to start reading myths to understand that. So there are, I just want to say this for a minute, I want to touch on science. If science attempts to answer questions about the world, it concerns itself with the how and it ignores the why right? So especially for metaphysical problems, science wants to conveniently ignore. For example, it's called in science the hard question of consciousness. Neuroscientists would rather map out the brain than deal with consciousness. They want to conveniently just think that, you know, what we are is some manifestation of the, you know, gray matter particulate in our brain and you and i know that's that's not you know that's not true they just kind of ignore the soul so they don't have to deal with it whereas so if science is the how myth is the why myth is the unseen it's the inconvenient mystery so this is really like my own definition of myth i'm sharing now it's really how we've explained the meaning of life the fabric of reality since the dawn of time well at least human time. If science is materialist and matter-based, myth is energetic and spiritual. Myth takes the it takes the enigmatic and it somehow makes it even stranger in a way that makes more sense at least to our hearts. It's not myth is not of the mind, it's of the heart and soul. I could go on and on. But I really want to go ahead and start diving into these beautiful definitions that I pulled from a book called, or I guess it's an essay, called Defining Myth by John S. Gentile. So this is a quote by a man named Alan Duns. He's an expert on American folklore, aka myth, quote, a myth is a sacred narrative explaining how the world and man came to be in their present form, end quote. so that's really beautiful and simple and straightforward as i said it's it's a narrative about the fabric of reality, and science has really taken over for that these days, right so Lucy Huskinson is a profess a professor and a writer, and she says quote. Myth is a conscious interpretation of unconscious communication, and as such, its nature is both rational and non-rational, archetypal image, and ineffable, numinous, End quote. So I love that word, numinous. I think it really encapsulates what, what myth is. It's, it's the indescribable. So Henry and Mrs. Henry H.A. Frankfurt, who are old school, um, I think from the late 1800s, Dutch Egyptologists and archaeologists, a couple. So they wrote in one of their books, quote, myth is a form of poetry which transcends poetry in that it proclaims a truth, a form of reasoning that transcends reasoning in that it wants to bring about a truth it proclaims, end quote. I love that so much. So much okay psychiatrist named Edward Edinger he defines myth as quote "myths are not simply tales of happenings in the remote past but eternal dramas that are living themselves out repeatedly in our own personal lives and in what we see all around us end quote so that is the archetype, right? That is what Jung, Jung talks about, which is, which we're going to do a lot of Jung-y and stuff, but not in this episode. But Jung is really the psychologist who brought forth this idea of the collective consciousness, right? And that we are, and he did a ton of work in myths, and him and Campbell's work is very intertwined. And essentially, we are constantly living out these same stories and these same patterns and we see them in our life. We see them in all this, you know, the movies we read, the stories we read. And myths are like the original seeds of that. And And to me, they are the most potent and pure and powerful seeds in that way. They They exist only for their own sake. This, they don't exist for the sake of making money, right? Of you know, being appealing to the masses. I think that's so important to remember that that is, it's such a modern thing that has corrupted the way we storytell these days. So to quote Mercia Elliott, who I love, you guys are going to understand that I just love and adore Mercia Elliott. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but he is a uh, historian, an ancient historian. And the reason I love him so much is because he's, well, he's incredibly prolific and his work is really deep. You know, he he doesn't seem to ever rely on other people's ideas and other people's paradigms. I think a lot of that is because his work was all published in the mid 20th century um, before science got so obsessed with, you know, just following what everybody else was saying and scholars um, and academia. But he's also just very, um, he does, he's not religious. He's not, you know, projecting. I mean, everyone is projecting and imprinting onto everything, but he does it the least of really almost like any ancient scholar I found thus far. So this is his quote about myth. Quote, the myth relates to a sacred history that is a primordial event that took place at the beginning of time. But to relate a sacred history is equivalent to revealing a mystery, end quote. So I think that's really interesting. And especially for us here that he seems to really relate the concept of myths to these very first creation stories. And that's that's going to be our focus is going to be looking at the myths of creation, So Jung, this is a quote by Jung about myths. Quote, myth are the original revelations of the pre-conscious psyche, involuntary statements about the unconscious psychic happenings, and anything but allegories of physical processes. End quote. So that last part is incredibly important. That's what we've been led to believe in schools growing up, is that myths are just like these stupid, um, savage, silly simple, allegorical, metaphorical stories about like why the sky is blue and like why tigers have their spots. Again, the way we were taught about myth is incredibly demeaning to to um, indigenous people. Like it's unbelievable and it still shows up everywhere and it's so deeply ingrained in, you know, what a lot of people would call the patriarchy, which is you know, the paradigm of thought that we live in, which is that science is God and the written word is completely superior to anything else. So I want to talk, let's start here. The Greek word mythos means to talk or story and this is really really important and it's this is why we need to understand why myths were always shared orally in community because it is completely essential we forget that this was the way that we just operated until extremely recently Myth transcends written history. All myths originate and are passed orally. So what gets written down, it's just a fragment. It's like this trapped aspect of the whole. And there is this understanding among people, you know, among indigenous people and anyone that studies myths is that every single time a myth gets written down, It loses part of its magic and it loses part of its meaning. I mean, I think that we can all do our best to translate it. And of course, I am someone who I am not connected to my, you know, my ancestry is Celtic, is Irish, and, you know, I don't, I didn't receive myths from my grandparents growing up. This is something I think that's especially unique to America and all Americans is that our break with our ancestors. I wrote a whole essay on Substack about this that you can read if you want to, but because we're this country of immigrants, people are always talking about, oh, America's so messed up. Yeah, no kidding. One of the reasons we're so messed up, a primal reason that no one thinks about is that everyone from you know, rich people that decided to emigrate here just for, you know, the access to more resources, to, you know, people like my ancestors who were, you know, extremely, extremely poor and escaping famine or escaping war, Um, to, you know, slaves or indentured servants who were brought over in chains in horrendous acts of violence and then, you know, subjected to continual violence. We all share in common that we have had a profound break with our ancestors, with our ancestry, with our grandparents and great-grandparents, with our native land, and therefore our stories and our myths. And it just cannot be overstated how heartbreaking that is. And it's this deep grief that we don't even know we are living through. And I brought this up to start with because, you know, I'm called here to share this podcast and these messages and, you know, I'm taking this all from reading, right? You know, I have, I mean, praise be, I would love, love nothing more than to come across um, various indigenous people or people who have heard myths and stories from indigenous groups over the years and be able to interview them um, all orally and share this all orally. But for me, I have to read these stories in books. That's my only access to them. And that is like a symptom. It's like this small little thing, but I, I just want to say that that is, it's profound. Like we're in this huge game of telephone and there's so much that gets lost and there's something really, really specific that gets lost when we start to write things down. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to make Ancient Future Heart a podcast because it had been a book living in drafts on my folder and my, you know, um, Google Docs for almost two years. So when did humans first speak? If you stay here in Ancient Future Heart, you'll realize that I like to go way, way, way back, as far back as I can. I want to get to the root of it. So that's where we're talking. When did we first speak beyond grunts? And the answer is, which it usually is, or the honest answer, we don't know. So one study says that the first speech sounds were uttered about 70,000 years ago. Professor George Poulos, who wrote the book Origins of Human Speech and Language, says that the transformation of sapiens* from non-speaking into speaking species, quote, happened at the same time our hunter-gatherer ancestors migrated out of Africa. Well, 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 now here we are. So did we migrate out of Africa? That is the story that we are told, and it is likely not true. So you might not have ever heard that before, but there is an immense amount of archaeological anomalies that are rising all the time, more and more, that poke enormous holes into this very linear narrative of the original ancient African diaspora. So... Now you're going to start to see as we move through this podcast that all of these theories in science are a ginormous, or in academia too, it's all a house of cards. It's all of these assumptions built on top of another. So Poulos is tracking this assumed African diaspora, so he's basing his entire theory on that, and he is saying that essentially that like changes in diet, more omega-3 fats from the coastlines, it's all theoretical, and I do think that it makes sense that travel or migration that what that entails in terms of what you have to do, right, that might, may necessitate higher forms of communication more so than, you know, it would have been living in one concentrated geographic area. So that makes sense to me, but we're going to get to how that's an entire theory that there's just really incredible evidence, you know, some of the oldest human remains are being found in North America, which shows that the entire theory of like migrating, that people migrated from Asia over, you know, a ice landmass bridge, you know, up near Alaska into North America and that that was the first humans in North America. That's just really not true. Um, There's just such overwhelming evidence. I mean, we don't know, but there's so much evidence now. So just keep in mind that Poulos' entire theory is based on, you know, what (laughs) may be completely wrong. So he says that we started with click sounds, which are still found in a few African languages. And even like the kiss that we click that babies make, that that is still the first speech sound ever produced by humans. That's part of his whole theory. And he talks about how the vocal tract, it would have been well proportioned in terms of our development based on you know some of the ancient corpses we have, which it's not like we even have that many, but that based on what he's seen that approximately 50,000 years ago is when those vocal you know, areas in the body looked like they were well-developed enough for a language. And he believes that language as we know it today developed only 20,000 years ago. 20,000 years ago, keep that number in mind in the future. But there's a lot to that 20,000. There are some big shifts that happened back back in that timeline, Um, but let's just keep going on the language development of language. So the theoretical timeline, according to other scholars, it just varies wildly. There is, you know, thoughts that 300,000 years ago was when our vocal anatomy changed. Another comprehensive study in the Smithsonian said, quote, several decades of research from primate vocalization to vocal tract acoustic modeling, quote, suggests that our free speech first speech (laughs) was 27 million years ago. So it's just a huge, wide range. And these researchers who say 27 million years ago, they are arguing that long before we were human homo sapiens... Um, we had the anatomical ability to make word sounds and these were linked to a cognitive ability that actually developed later on is how it became language as we know it. And we know that animals such as birds and elephants can mimic human voice sounds using an entirely different anatomy. So this entire concept, you know, back to the Pulos, sorry Pulos, um, that, you know, it needs to be based on anatomy is really incorrect. And we won't even go into animals here, um, but obviously, you know, animals have extremely complex language systems. I mean, whales are known to have, actually, sperm whales. I was just reading about this with my kids the other day, have perhaps the most complex language system on earth that we know of. So, What came first in humans, at least? Music, singing, or speaking? Again, we don't know. There are a lot of theories that singing and, you know, lyrical expression of the voice came before we spoke in this monotone way that we do now. So, the oldest instrument, musical instrument, that has been found thus far is 40,000 years old. And many scientists view music as, quote, precognitive and archaic. Well, duh, of course. Um, Annie Patel of the Neurosciences Institute says that even Charles Darwin quote talked about our ancestors singing love songs to each other before we could speak and articulate language, which is a really beautiful quote. And we are going to go deep into Darwinian theory too. So we're not going to, you know, act like put him up on a pedestal, but, um, or his, or his science. But I do believe that, I mean, there's so much Genius in it, but there's also, you know, there's a lot to dive into there, but that's a really lovely quote, I think. So, musical ability is essentially similar to how we see it in other species you know monkeys apparently can recognize different tones and songbirds they use pitch and rhythm and parrots are known to dance um, so scholars define prehistory I think this is so essential to just note is any event that occurred before the existence of written words in a given culture or society so again prehistory what does that mean it is anything before written records History is that time period after the invention of written records in a given culture or society. So we are working with very little is really the truth of the matter. And we're going to talk about that as we get into the history of writing. So you will never you will never guess what the earliest known human drawing is, what symbol it is. Like just in your mind right now, try to think about what it might be. It's a hashtag. (laughs) It's a cross-hatched pattern drawn in red ochre, which is what a lot of the most ancient cave drawings are made of, is this red pigment. It is in a cave in Africa, and it's about 70,000 years old, so it's at least 30,000 years old older than the famous, um, drawings in Europe. The, I don't, I'm going to say the word wrong, like the, the caves in France, um, and in Spain, and even some of the ones in Asia and other ones in Africa. So this is more than twice as old as the other cave drawings that we are more familiar with and which are, I mean, relatively prolific. Again, we're just finding what we find. I, we have to keep that in mind, right? You know, we talk about these things as though they are the only things, and I guess that's really all we have to go on, but we're just, we're dealing with teeny tiny fragments and trying to make sense out of them. So what this hashtag pattern shows scholars is that early humans could make graphic designs with techniques a very, very long time ago. So this is really like the, pre, the pre-dating of writing of the written word. That's why I'm sharing it. So the earliest known representational artwork Um, Maybe the most ancient artwork yet found is this really beautiful drawing of three wild pigs that's painted in a limestone cave on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi, which is at least 45,000 years old. So again, it's done with this red ochre pigment, and the pigs appear to be fighting. One of the three drawings is extremely well-preserved, and the other two are essentially gone, but it's really beautiful. I have made it the cover art of this episode so you can look at that. But the same team of researchers who found these pig drawings, they had also discovered the second oldest cave drawing which was 43,900 years ago. This is the dating system and it was of eight figures with weapons in hand approaching wild pigs and small native buffalo also in Indonesia. So What is important to know is that these people were very modern they were a lot like us. They had all the capacity they needed to do tools, that to do drawings and paintings. They had sophisticated hunting techniques and these very sophisticated representational, aka artistic techniques. And we will 100% do a full episode on cave drawings, um, and definitely one on early figurines in the next few months. But I really wanted to go into it here because we get so fixated on like what is written. And I just think it's so important to have this holistic view of the ways in which humans have told stories forever. And that written history is just like, it's a blip on the radar. So full writing systems, we're going to dive deep into the first writing systems now. They appeared independently at least four times in human history. And this is, again, a huge theme, a thread that we are going to pull again and again on Ancient Future Heart, which is that throughout history, sophisticated new technologies and stories about them have popped up seemingly without a long, slow evolution. That's what we're taught, that there's always this progression and it's step by step and that we were these savages and then we, you know, learned over time. And that's actually not true archaeologically and historically is that there have been all of these, you know, the most famous being right after, I mean, like right before the agricultural revolution um so about like 6000 years ago 6 to 9000 years ago um and we're going to there, there was a huge flood called the Younger Dryas event in about 9,000 years ago. Um, and so there was like a, a lull after that. And then out of nowhere, um, seemingly, according to historians, all of these complex agricultural societies popped up. And then there are all of these you know anomalies like Gobekli Tepe um, and other megaliths. And a lot of the megaliths are not dated correctly, such as the Sphinx. Um, This is all stuff we're going to dive into, but I think it's really important to just every single time we see this theme to note it because it's a huge missing piece that the mainstream won't address, but there is this way in which we have grown and we don't again, evolved if where these new technologies or or seemingly new pop up, and it happens in disparate places around the globe, right? So this is akin to how there are flood stories in every single culture all over the world that are way more ancient than you know, how how we trade and how we imagine communication systems are. So there's only a couple possible explanations, right, Um, of how and why every single culture has the same stories. I mean, down to like startlingly small details, especially about these wise men who came and brought this technology from, you know, from the pre-ancient world, from before the flood. And, you know, this is told, again, in civilization after civilization, from South America to Mesopotamia to, you know, Australia and the aboriginal people there. It's just, it's everywhere. The first writing, which was rudimentary wedge-shaped characters called cuneiform, it showed up in these four places First, So, there was Mesopotamia, which is really present-day Iraq in, they believe, 5,400 years ago. I like to use before-present, by the way, rather than doing the whole BC thing and having to constantly add 2,000 years in your head. So, Another place cuneiform writing showed up was in Egypt, roughly the same time, we think 5,200 years ago, and then it's traced back to Zhang Dynasty, China, at least 3,300 years ago, they had a actually fully operational writing system, and then in Mesoamerica, which is South America, writing appears, well, what we have found, traces of writing as far back as 2,900 years ago. Scholars believe what they call, quote, pictorial signs were gradually substituted for those original rudimentary, what are called cuneiform writing symbols, for a complex system of characters which represented sound. So that's a really important distinction is at first there were these symbols and over time they became symbols that represented spoken sounds. At first, the symbols themselves were representational of ideas and concepts in and, in and of themselves. So cuneiform is that representation of a character into wet clay with a pen made from a reed. And again, it took hundreds of years to establish this writing style and other Different types of writing styles. Discoveries of writing in Egypt are continually pushed back. Some believe there were there were writings 6,250 years ago, including ceremonial scenes in rock art, different hieroglyphic forms. Apparently, there are some signs that are as big as a meter in height. So, like the the character itself, the you know, the alphabet, the letter is just enormous in some of these. In some of these uh, very, very early ancient Egyptian drawings. And even hieroglyphs found on small ivory tablets that were used as labels on graves and tombs. Those are some of the very earliest pieces of writing that we have from Egypt. And Egypt was this first place where we found thus far um, writing with ink. And it was reed brushes were used. And the only people to do this were the priests. Um, The priests carved and painted these letters, which we also know as hieroglyphs, meaning sacred carvings. And these are at the same time, the, the writing with the reed brushes and the inks and the hieroglyphs. And it's really, really fascinating how the different types of writing in these ancient civilizations, they serve different functions. And Eventually, the Egyptians had a, you know, um, 24-character symbol, you know, symbolic uh, alphabet, which had phonetic components that represented, represented combinations of sounds and symbols. There was also ones that just did not have a phonetic value, that they were just symbols. And I want to note that the god who was given the... The notion of the inventor of writing is Toth. And that is a really fun rabbit hole. And just a Toth is a fascinating, fascinating mythological figure. And we're going to go deep into him, maybe. Maybe soon, maybe that'll be one of the first episodes after this one, so we could keep going to different countries and you know different times that things emerged in this field of trying to figure out what was the earliest form of the written word where what was an oral tradition was you know brought into the physical form and starting to be recorded, but what's really important. To understand is that writing is so, so new in human history that we go back, you know, just a couple of thousand years, or not a couple, but a few thousand years, and that's when we are first writing, as far as we know. Whereas oral traditions go back at least tens of thousands of years to the very, very few first civilizations. So once we started writing things down, writing down our stories, Writing continued to be the realm of a very small section of society. So writing was only done for two main purposes, the very, very sacred and the very, very mundane. So priests were writing because they were communicating with the gods. They were marking tombs. They were encapsulating ideas and beliefs. These were priests and wise people. And then writing was done for administrative and legal purposes, the aspects of a functioning society, right? Keeping track of the economy, of trade, of harvests. So it's so interesting that these two kind of sit next to each other. The priests, you know, talking about, or in their writing, the most the highest parts of a given society and very mysterious and very much um, relegated to a very few people because only the most sacred bearers, priests, priestesses, etc., could do that, perform that function. And they were the only people that could write or, you know, Administrators within whatever form of government there was, there would be a scribe, right? Who would be keeping track of all of these things for the good of the people, which is a very simple and straightforward and mundane task. And everybody else was illiterate. (laughs) For everybody else, again, this is we're thinking, okay, back 5,300 years or so, even up until, you know, not until the 14th century. When the printing press was invented, literacy rates did not start to increase in any way until the 14th century when the printing press was invented, which is in 1440 by Johannes Gutenberg. And at that time, only 80% of English adults, sorry, 80% of English adults could not spell their own names. So only 20% of English adults could spell their own name. That is the level of illiteracy that was, you know, that's just one country, right? And that is a country that in the 14th century, they had, think about industrialization, was really, really starting to move forward. There was a certain level of technology there, right? But still, people were illiterate all across the world. Even the Bible, if people could read, reading the Bible was banned for common folk for most of history. In 1376, Pope Gregory XI ordered all literature on the Bible to be for the priesthood only. So that's all other books that were related to the Bible. In 1466, the Mentellan Bible was the first vernacular language Bible to be printed, which was a word-for-word translation from the Latin into the German. And continue, Pope Paul II confirmed the degree, the prohibition on Bibles and vernacular languages for hundreds of years. So let's fast forward to in 1820, globally, only 12% of the world could read and write. And then today, in 2023, only 14% of the world's population remains illiterate. So it's taken 200 years for those statistics to flip. In the last 70 years, massive leaps have happened. Post-World War II, there has been a 4% increase in literacy every five years. Okay, so let's go back to myths. Let's just dial this back again. I want to quote this really, really beautiful quote by Mamang Day. Since the history of mankind began, a family, a group, Or a community have, from the beginning, arranged for themselves a world in which certain phenomena were explained and recognized. So, myths are our stories of meanings. They evolved over time. They were passed down through the generations, woven and shifted with the consciousness of each time period. They are not invented out of nowhere, to bring it back to what I was talking about in the very beginning. Another quote. This is the substance of faith. So many questions remain unanswered. The evidence available is never conclusive, yet the quest for a starting place to define and guide the rest of our journey of life continues. So this is the scholar, Mamong Dang. He calls myths, and I love this, ecological wisdom and talks about how the... Any myth is woven with the energy of the tribe, the group of people it comes from, the geography, the animals, the weather. It all comes together. And this is how myth mirrors the truth that we are nature itself. That is the frequency of myth. That we are nature. And nature is us. The modern perspective of myth which we've talked about, is that they are fallible and faulty, but scholars on oral traditions have found that they are actually highly, highly accurate. So I want to just read this one quote from a man named Joseph Hall, and it's a book called The Old Religion, and it's speaking against a Roman, it was a Protestant book um, in the 19th century, speaking against the Roman Catholic desire for an old tradition. And I just think that it really encapsulates modernity's um, rub with myths. So this is this guy, Joseph Hall, quote, as for oral traditions, what certainty can there be in them? What foundations of truth can be laid upon the breath of man? How do we see the reports vary of those things which our eyes have not done? How do they multiply in their passage and either grow or die upon hazards? End quote. So that really demonstrates how Western society has always viewed myth and oral traditions in this extremely skeptical way. It's like we are obsessed with this desire for certainty and it's funny because we crave antiquity, but then we don't like what antiquity is, which is mysterious. So Adrienne Mayer is an anthropologist, and she reflected that oral traditions are about historical events and that these can endure for thousands of years accurately. Some oral myths about geological and astronomical events can be reliably dated to about 7,000 years ago. That is how historically reliable oral myths are and traditions. Mayer said that American Indian legends suggest that fossils were understood to be long-extinct megafauna populations by, by American Indians thousands of years ago. Like, they knew extremely accurate information, scientific, about their surroundings and the, the story of their surroundings, Scholars and scientists are starting to really understand this and recognize it and come to the very obvious truth that these oral traditions are not primitive and unreliable, but they're extremely sophisticated and dependable. Serena Love, this is one, another scholar, says, quote, the Egyptians were consciously aware of their historical past and used it to create new versions of the past for the present. Okay, just sit with that for a minute. That is so essential. If myths have evolved and changed over time, it's not because people are necessarily manipulating them or for in a negative sense, right? Or forgetting or whatever. And it, does that make sense? It's very often a shift that is needed to speak the language of the more modern people, that myths may change to speak to what is needing to be heard, right? What, what versions of the past the present people are needing to know. And I think that this really relates to the truth about history, you know i think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that history as we have been taught it is not necessarily accurate you know as as the saying goes to the victors go the spoils and part of those spoils is being able to write the history that the winners write the history and the men write the history and so what we consider the you know the tapestry of our collective past which we've been taught is this very objective fixed, proven narrative is that as like something that is singular and impenetrable and never false is is wrong. Like it is absolutely false. If even that falsity is only the myopicness, the extremely small scope of perspective that it has because in that narrow mindedness, immense amounts of wildly important information has been lost. So another thing I want to point out about ancient historians is when we look at ancient historians, think for example, Plato, they, believed what they heard. I mean, Plato was a genius, right? And when he heard the tale of Atlantis, he took that as history. He wasn't like, "Oh, this is some weird story that people made up and passed on because they wanted to explain some, you know, concept." No, he wrote the account of Atlantis as if it was a real lived history, which is how it had been related to him and how it had been related to the person that told him. And that is really normal, even if we think about the Old Testament. The genealogies in the Old Testament are well known to be quite accurate. And people think that those were written down a really long time ago. They weren't. A lot of those genealogies were not written down until about 500 years or so before Christ was born. So 2,500 years ago, maybe a little bit later. I want to read this quote by Del Himes. The paradox of myths is that they vary so much, yet in principle are passed on unchanged. And he makes this really important point that myths are always diverse because think about it. Every single story is always going to shift a little bit, even if it's solely the frequency of the person's voice. An individual who retells a story Always imprints on the story, whether it's written or just spoken. Last quote on this specific topic by a, let's see if I can say her last name, a scholar named Julie Cruxgank, Quote, oral histories were once evaluated by historians and anthropologists with reference to questions about their accuracy, objectivity, reliability, and verifiability. A richer vein now examines storytelling as a practice that is part of everyday life and that provides a framework for understanding historical and contemporary issues. Myths are stories. History is a story. It shifts with new data, outside influence, and when did science, when did communication among the first people actually begin? We don't know. We just don't know. Like commonality and myths such as the flood and the golden age, which we're going to talk a lot about, we really don't know why these very disparate societies, very ancient throughout the world, all have the same stories. It could be that these are universal archetypes that really are just psychological and lived in the collective consciousness, you know, Or they could actually be some sort of historical events that were witnessed by many people groups or experienced, and that's why they're retold by all these cultures that did not have any contact with each other as far as we know. So Aboriginal Australian people observed and remembered varying sea levels from the ancient past through their oral traditions and myths including the Younger Dryas event, which I mentioned earlier, which was a cataclysmic flood 10,000 years ago. Like that is how, that's just one more little snippet I have from my notes about how incredibly accurate indigenous people are in recording history. It's not like these aren't made up stories. And obviously there is a range The last thing I want to say is that myths, to me, they mirror our memory. They're pliable. They are told in a fragmented way. And our relationship with objective history and time, past, future, present, is not what we are actually told. And we're going to get into that in the next, not the next episode, but very soon. I want to definitely dive into time and start to break down what we're told about time because time is not how we learn about it or how we think we experience it. And I think that myth really mirrors the truth about time. Myths are so, so deeply, deeply felt. And we are going to be playing with all of these ideas around myth how much of it is history? How much of it is pure allegory? How much of it is here to tell us about creation? And how much of it is here to just tell us about how to live in this creation? How to make sense of it all? So, That is where we're going to end for today. I am so grateful that you're here and listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it with a friend. I would really, really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on whatever app you're listening on. What I'm going to start doing is I'm going to be doing a book giveaway once a month. So if you rate and review the podcast, take a screenshot of it, DM me on Instagram at Kelly Joyce Ingram or at, at Ancient Future Heart. Um, you can email it to me, Ancient ancient at gmail.com, however you want to get it to me. Just go ahead and send it to me, and whoever rates and reviews is going to enter a giveaway for a book. This month, I'm going to give away Circe, which I have loved, loved, loved reading. It's actually a novel um, about, it's like a creative retelling by Madeline Miller is the name of the author about the story of Circe, who is one of the Greek goddesses of, she's a Greek goddess of sorcery. And it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. So If you want to do that, enter. And if you want to become a member of Ancient Future Heart, you can head over to Substack. And that's where there are already two members-only episodes, two of the first five. We're going to be aiming, I'm going to be aiming for about two private members-only episodes a month, maybe sometimes more, maybe sometimes less, and a couple of essays. So I'd love for you to be part of the community. This is a community based podcast and supported podcast. There are no ads, which helps me just, you know, be weird and go to all of the different places. (laughs) And so I want to know, I want to know what you want to know too. Um, so thank you so much for being part of this community and we'll talk soon.